Good morning. Welcome to this worship assembly. We highly recommend that you come here with a Bible. And this morning, first, I'm going to take us to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 21 and 22, I'll make reference to the historical setting. And then I'll do some reading from Jeremiah chapter 22. The prophet is relating what he knew was going to happen in the interaction between two nations, Judah and Babylon. He speaks to the king of Judah, and this is the message, Jeremiah 22, 1 through 5. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. He speaks to the king of Judah about the interaction between two nations, Judah and Babylon. Now, how did Jeremiah know what would happen in this interaction between these nations? And on what basis did the prophet issue the call to obedience and the warning about disobedience? How did Jeremiah come about all this information? Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Look at verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord. Verse 18. Verse 30. Thus says the Lord. Back in chapter 21, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Jeremiah was not an independent advisor to kings who simply offered his opinions about the future. We discover all the way back in the first chapter of Jeremiah we discover all the way back in chapter 1, God called him and God gave him what to say. The word of God came to this man. In Jeremiah chapter 1, he said to God, I'm a young man. I'm not a public speaker. I have no experience in prophecy or preaching. And here's what God's response was. Jeremiah 1, 7 through 10. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, 
and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Here's what I want us to see. When God reveals his will, when there is instruction given to man, warning, commands, principles, where there is a thus says the Lord, man's response ought to be reverent, responsive, continued obedience. Where there is a thus says the Lord, man's response ought to be reverent, responsive, continued obedience. When God has spoken, it is incumbent upon us to pay attention, to trust God, to love God, and obey His commands. To this, may I add, from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God has spoken. Man's response ought to be reverent, responsive, continued obedience to what has been revealed. Do you remember when Paul and Silas came to Berea, preached the gospel, and it says there were noble Jews there who searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's Acts 17 and verse 11. We have in this book what God has spoken for us to read, to fill our minds and lives with truth, to adjust our attitudes, to be recipients of good news, to respond to Jesus Christ, to dispel ignorance, to know what God wants us to do as individuals and families and local churches. When we open this book, we have a thus says the Lord. And we depend on that. We follow that. It is not a matter of men in some headquarters off somewhere convening some human council and making decisions and publishing and sending out what the churches are to do. That's denominationalism. When we read the New Testament about what we should think, speak, and act, and react, and how we ought to feel, that's divine truth for our obedient response 
today. When we are challenged about what to do, we ought to be able to give book, chapter, and verse from the inspired record. I want to talk to you this morning from various passages about that phrase, book, chapter, and verse. We're talking about God's authoritative word given by the Holy Spirit through the human writers God chose. That's what we do. It is how we answer. It is our standard book, chapter, and verse. Book, chapter, and verse in context. Faithful gospel preachers have a lot to say about context. And here's why. The Bible isn't just a book loaded with 780,000 words. The Bible isn't just random sentences dropped out of heaven onto the page. No, the words, phrases, and sentences were put there as connected by the Holy Spirit. There is intelligent content, sensible, readable, comprehensive as to our response to God. That means I cannot just open the book and pick out a phrase give no attention to the context of that phrase, combine it with other phrases that I've picked up here and there, and then formulate doctrine or theology or application or arguments. I need to read the Bible. I must read the Bible in good order, handling carefully and respectfully what God has given for us to know and do. I want to give you an example of what can happen when you pull a phrase out of Scripture, but without context. I want to show you how misleading it can be for a phrase to be quoted out of its context. Now, you're going to have to listen to me fully here. The Bible says there is no God. I'm going to give you book, chapter, and verse. And when I do, you'll see context. Psalms, chapter 14, verse 1. When you get there, you will immediately see, I didn't read all of that. I didn't give you the context. So here is the complete verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We ought to be people who study and abide by Scripture with such care and discipline, with such reverence and objectivity, we are taken away from that bad habit of just quoting some sentence or phrase without regard to its context. When we cite book, chapter, and verse, we need to be certain we are not violating 
context. And we need to invite people when we quote from the Bible to go back and examine that context. I believe God made us in his image and then communicated to us in exactly the way he wired our brains. And that is to not just focus on words, but how those words are arranged and the setting, the history, and all the available information to understand the individual passages. There is a righteous objectivity we need to take with us into every time we open this book. Not influenced by what we might want the Bible to say, but what it actually says to us. Not using the Bible just to prove that we are right against some opponent, but humble, righteous, submissive, objectivity that takes into account everything about the matter at hand. Book, chapter, and verse in context. Book, chapter, and verse unadulterated. Book, chapter, and verse unadulterated. I want to give you an example of quoting book, chapter, and verse, but then making a claim about that passage that is adulterated with some twist or self-serving motive. And I'm going to give you this example from one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. Let's read about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you were the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, book, chapter, and verse, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you were the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, did the devil quote scripture? Well, he did. In verse 6, it is written, the devil said, quoting from Psalms 91, 11, and 12. I realize numerically and in terms of publication, there were not 
literal book chapters and verses back then, but he quoted scripture. That's the point. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. But the devil uses that text adulterated by his vain efforts to get Jesus to sin. He's not quoting Psalm 91 as a legitimate objective exposition of that text. He doesn't care what it says. He wants Jesus to sin. Just because a passage is quoted doesn't mean the quoter is using the passage honestly and objectively. I'll give you another example. In our religious world, almost anyone can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can quote that. Yes, that's John 3.16, book, chapter, and verse in, in our Bibles. Yet in popular denominational jargon, the claim is... That means no baptism, no works of obedience, just believe. Now, do you have John 3 open? Do you have John chapter 3 open? Let's go there. John chapter 3. We know what verse 16 says. But I want you to open to John chapter 3. And I want you to look this time at another part of the context in chapter 3, verse 5. Truly I say to you, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless something is done, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then I want you to look at John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Book, chapter, and verse is of the highest importance. It's what was called in Jeremiah, thus says the Lord. But we must always respect the context. What's before that verse? What's after that verse? What is the writer driving out? What's the historical setting? Never cite a passage and then adulterate it with human dogma. Where there is a thus saith the Lord, book, chapter, and verse, man's response ought to be reverent, responsive, and consistent obedience. Book, chapter, and verse, once for all. Be turning to the book of Jude. Be turning, please, to the book of Jude. Very small epistle over in the latter part of the New Testament. Here's what would really bother me. If I were a part of one of those big denominational complexes, the standard is fluid. The rules change. In many of these large denominational enterprises and complexes, there's an annual conference convened every year. 
and board members vote on what rules to change. Why, this is happening now in America. It happens all the time. You see it in the news. An annual conference takes place, and on the agenda, what can we do to include transgender people? How can we compromise on abortion? And often it'll hit the news that there's a division. See, if I were a member of a denominational complex, no autonomy governed by what men decided off in Houston or Dallas or Chicago, I'd be entirely disappointed and frustrated because the rules would change. The standard if you can use that term, would be fluid. So I love what God has done in giving us, here's what it says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I love what God has done in giving us the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Once for all, or as Peter said in 1 Peter 1.23, the living and abiding word of God. What men come up with changes, changes very often that follow the flow of the world and the culture. We have something that is absolute truth from God to consult to look at book, chapter, and verse in context, unadulterated, from now until we die. Where there is a thus says the Lord, man's response ought to be reverent, responsive, continued obedience. The permanence, the endurance of the word of God is truth that comforts us, motivates us, and is our menu for future spiritual progress and growth. As a local church, may we be people who appeal only to Scripture. When people ask the reason why we do what we do, may we be ready with book, chapter, and verse in context unadulterated, given by God once for all. Here's a personal exercise. Write down what you believe. Just take statement by statement. Review your faith. Write down what you believe. And then ask, do I have a scriptural basis for this belief? Is there a book, chapter, and verse that teaches that, that implies it conclusively, book, chapter, and verse in context, unadulterated, once for all given? Sort through what you believe and classify it. Scripture or opinion. Where there is a thus says the Lord. Man's response must be reverent, responsive, consistent, 
obedience. This is why when we speak to people about becoming a Christian, we give them book, chapter, and verse. We talk about the plan of salvation. And you remember that chart that I thought was going to come up. You remember that chart that we use all the time. And I, I appeal to people when I do home Bible studies with that chart. Look at the context. And sometimes I take them there. Look at the context. God is above all, Ephesians 4 and verse 6. The Bible is his word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Christ is the son of God. Sin is the problem. Christ is the solution. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, live faithfully. All of those verses have context that are in harmony with those conditions and those truths. If not, come help me revise that chart. If you're ready to become a Christian and live your life by Scripture, we invite you to respond now as we stand together to sing.